Hello everybody, welcome to this week's HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm Dave West, HSJ's Deputy Editor. It is back to school week for many and this year that holds an extra significance for many parents or teachers or indeed for some in the health sector with responsibilities for that area. But as it's the start of the autumn term, in this podcast we are turning our thoughts to the big issues and events for the health service of the next three to four months. I'm joined to do this by a complement of my of five of my fellow HSJ journalists uh, who will each speak about some of the very big issues which this autumn term holds for the areas they cover. And I want to start with um, with Tom Norton, our finance correspondent, because a huge um, item in the calendar for many, um, for pretty much every sector within the UK is the comprehensive spending review, uh, which the Chancellor is expected to deliver through that period um, and in completely unprecedented circumstances. Um, Tom, um, could you tell us what the uh, significance of the comprehensive spending review is for the NHS? Hi there. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, first pointing out, of course, that the uh, co- that the comprehensive spending review as a as a multi-year uh, commitment uh, has been has been pushed back first by the election and then and then by COVID pressures. So anticipation the, the anticipation of what will be announced is um, uh, is obviously obviously grown hugely and it will set the revenue budgets to 2023-24 and capital budgets to. 2425 um obviously in 2018 we saw the sort of uh, Theresa May government setting out what would be the core NHS budget from 1920 to 2024 with a 3.4% increase year on year in cash terms for the NHS but obviously so much has has, ha- has happened since then that um we're going to be taking probably taking a much different different look at, at the priorities now um, I want to start possibly with just talking about capital um, because we are, we're still expecting to see a multi-year strategic capital plan for the NHS and that's been promised for some years. Um, this is obviously going to be um, generating a lot of a lot of discussion particularly about the role of systems and their management of, of capital budgets for um, uh, yeah, regional ICS's STPs going forward. Um, We'll come a bit more to the importance of systems in a, in a minute, but I mean, just to point out the kind of commitments that have been so far this year, we, you know, we've seen a you know, huge increase in the um, capital spending roof uh, uh, for the um, Department of Health for the NHS, of around nine billion if you take into account um, you know, COVID-19 investments, announcements on new capital projects and the uplift in the NHS's capital budget as well. Um, but the feeling is that there's still going to be, you know, there's a, a appropriate want or for a more kind of a sustainable, uh, stable and, and workable capital spending increases in the long term. Um, you know, that's desired to help keep cash uh, more than having cash just pumping through the system to meet demands uh, on on the fly, such as, you know, winter planning or, or COVID-19. Um, Obviously, that there's going to be need to be some uh, commitment, as the government's already set out in its election pledges on the building of 40 new hospitals. But I mean, there's the obviously other other huge questions around um, commitments to um, uh, improving NHS estate, um, as well as the as well as the you know the 40 new hospitals. Uh, the NHS still has a gargantuan maintenance backlog to deal with. 
Um, people I've spoken to say the quality of the current NHS estate doesn't really match what's needed to kind of deliver an effective and safe care in response to a pandemic, at least of all the fact that, you know, that was probably a concern even before COVID-19. Um, but yeah, there, there's, cl there's clearly huge anticipation that we'll get, we'll have some more information about uh, a multi-year uh, capital uh, agreement. Um, Looking elsewhere, obviously uh, not within the NHS, another big ticket though is going to be uh, what commitments will be for social care um, and despite the lack of a green paper, you know, we'll be seeing whether or not uh, government, what plans the government has for moving forward uh, beyond the 1.5 billion committed last year in the sort of one year spending review. Um, you know, which I guess now, if you take into the accounts by the, take into account the the billions that have been sort of swirling around in response to to COVID, that amount of money seems quite meagre, considering the crucial impact social care has not only had as a frontline service for COVID, but from the threats it faces to local authority from local authority funding. Sorry, um, but yeah, but I mean, in revenue spending too, um, uh, as well as the, you know. The, the the huge the huge issue on um will be that the trusts are already being faced with and uh and this this I've mentioned about systems in a second um but we're kind of looking at the um uh, re restoring of services and dealing with the huge backlog of uh, patients and you know significant pressure now for uh, providers and systems to deliver care at capacity. Um, many the, many people consider, you know, the 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 scale of the ambitions, the the capacity targets recently set in the in the phase three letter being for the birds, and the only real way to afford it will be for you know through funding for more effective, uh, you know, training facilities and crucially more staff. Um, you know, also got to take into account the likelihood of a longer term need for the independent sector support in dealing with that with that backlog too. Um, and you know, you, once you add all this up, you can just start to see. And this is only really a, a small, uh, you know, picture of how important this review is going to be. Um, you know, Chris Hobson of NHS Providers said um, said this month that he, you know, he considers it's going to be an impossible task for the government to meet not only its commitments on the manifesto, but also delivering the NHS long-term plan, dealing um, uh, dealing with current care backlogs and reforming social care, you know, without revisiting the, the core NHS England budget that was set out. Um, it's, yeah, that would be an impossible task. I think we're going to see we're going to see something very significant, but, you know, kind of given the fraught nature of the of the ongoing, you know, finance negotiations between the NHS and the government, you know, um, yeah, still still remains to be seen what will be the um, priorities and the Treasury certainly keeping things close to its chest. OK, thank you. A huge amount of um, complicated issues included there. Um, and uh, as you said, it, one of the things, um, one of the crucial things is in relation to being able to the NHS actually do its job, whatever job it was doing before will now cost more to deliver. And we, we see that most clearly um, perhaps in terms of elective care where, where hospitals and others are saying that um, saying that they can essentially for the same with the same staffing and facilities and resources they can actually do you know substantially less 30 40 50 percent less activity and um so james illman who's our, our bureau chief and and uh, lead journalist for performance um elective and emergency performance um is going to talk to us about the what the next three or four months hold for for the for, for elective and emergency care world and in particular the elective care performance over that period yeah so sure so so as uh, both you and Tom have alluded to, the uh, 
overarching principle of the phase three guidance was to get electives and outpatient activity back on track to kind of pre-COVID levels or, 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 or near normal was the phrase used and system leaders identified a window of opportunity over the summer and uh, well, sort of late summer and autumn before the conventional winter pressures uh, start cranking up in order to get this done. As both you've said, the, the targets are incredibly uh, ambitious to say the very least. Um, but I mean, the first point I'd make is even if the system did get back to 100% of its pre-COVID activity, waiting lists would still be increasing because there were 4.4 million on the list in February. Uh, and we know that um, the uh, system hasn't been hitting its 18-week um, target for years, and so that that list has been building up. So to to kind of get the list going the other way, you'd need to be going beyond that. And for reasons we've discussed before about the uh, uh, the 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 amount of capacity lost because of of social distancing and 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 having to don and off PPE, et cetera, et cetera. That that just looks like a very, very tall order indeed. I think one one situation I just wanted to uh, highlight especially was the uh, the case of the people waiting the longest for their treatment. So uh, those waiting over 52 weeks is looking really, really uh, pretty scary. The um, the data before um, so in around February showed that there were 1,613 patients waiting over a year for um, uh, an elective procedure. That had gone up to 50,536 um, as, of, as of June. So, I mean, it's just a staggering increase, really. Other concerning areas in terms of the long waits include, um, yeah, the proportion of cancer patients waiting longer than 104 days, doubling from 5.3 to 10.7% year on year. Uh, and that was also from that August data. Um, yeah, so no one, the think tanks, not the trust leaders, think that these targets are achievable. But in terms of how things are going to get back um, sort of to as, as good as can be, um, there's sort of, I guess, three-pronged attack. One is to try and use as much private sector capacity as possible, but that's been... Um, yeah, there's a bit of a roadblock there because the, the NHS had previously agreed, um, agreed this deal uh, at the beginning of the outbreak to kind of nationalise the private sector's 8,000 beds. They had this big uh, block booking deal, which was costing around 400 million a month. Um, but that uh, was um, ended quite recently, uh, mainly for financial reasons. It was very expensive, uh, even, even though the um, uh, private providers were providing a cost. Um, the costs in some private providers are, are, are higher than perhaps they would be in the NHS. So getting a new uh, deal in place with the private sector is, is pretty vital. That work is ongoing. There's been a lot of talk about system-wide waiting lists to kind of better utilize capacity across um across yeah systems health systems so hospitals kind of getting together and saying look we've got these many people on our list where's the capacity how can we best fit this in but there isn't really a kind of financial framework to ensure that this is done in an equitable manner and until there's kind of financial incentives then unfortunately i i can't see that really being a um uh, a kind of game changer across the whole country 
and then yeah tom was talking about expanding capacity and um for the reasons set out very eloquently by Tom in that in, in 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 that intro. That's going to be incredibly hard because there's not much money around. There's not much staff. Uh, there's, there's, we know that there was a workforce crisis pre-COVID, uh, and that certainly hasn't really. Uh, there's, there's been no massive shifting of the dial on that. So all in all, it looks like a very tough winter ahead. Do you, Dave, do you want me to kind of quickly just go over the? I mean, one of the things I would say about emergency care, I don't really think we've got enough time to uh, get mm. fully stuck into that. But um, obviously, as the winter pressures cranks up over the COVID period, you know, A&E attendances have been way down to un unprecedented levels. So that that pressure hasn't been there of emergency admissions, which, you know, take up a lot of beds and a, a lot of space kind of eats into your um uh, the segment that you can use for elective care and we're expecting all those pressures to crank up as well so uh yeah expecting uh, yeah although we don't ahead. not uh expecting but not definite i suppose because the um uh this kind of obviously some of the things in over the next three or four months uh, are in the diary like the comprehensive spending review it will happen one way or another but there are some that you know i've 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 um want us to talk about uh, in this session because actually it could could go either way and it's not it's not a sort of a decision that's within our um, within anybody in particular's uh, gift um, it, it precisely and and there is you know there is one version of events in which this winter is actually extremely quiet in that it's um, you know a lot of um, uh, it, because there was at least some level of social isolation will remain in place so flu will be spreading less um, uh, a lot of people, you know, brutally and obviously horrifically, a lot of older people who would normally be admitted to hospital and often sometimes die in winter have already died over the past few months. Um, and uh, 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 other factors, um, you know, as you say, emergency activity still does appear to be a little below um, normal um, for, for reasons of other people not doing various other things that can cause them to to be admitted so there's a lot of reasons to be concerned but it's not we don't quite know and we'll come on to to speak to uh, uh, jack sell later in the session I, about um about public health and and the whether there will or won't be a coronavirus spike obviously an enormous factor in whether the nhs will be able to uh, do anything like 100 percent elective activity or actually will end up doing uh, you know go back to, to march april and be doing no very very little elective activity yeah, no, I, I was just I was just going to say that, yes, that they, that's the hope um, that there, there is this kind of, uh, yeah, benefits of COVID, I guess, um, in in the people will be isolating more. Mm. But I, I think, again, I go back to the point I was making at the beginning about the where where the system was pre-COVID and that was not in a good place. So it, it wasn't really coping then. You look at the last few winters and they've all been incredibly tough. So, um, yeah, well, the I objective think... in uh, February was uh, planning guidance was to get try and get bed occupancy down to 92 percent, wasn't it? Whereas now it's presumably somewhere around 60, 70 percent, I would guess. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, yeah. figures are not available to HSJ at this time. Um, <laughs> The um, uh, but one of the other things that will um, you know sort of reveal itself over the next few months um, uh, that I wanted to ask um, Jasmine Rapson about uh, who covers digital services and um, now, now primary care for us is um, are the prospects of over that period for locking in uh, the kind of tech change which um, you know much of which is seen as an improvement but some of which is comes with big problems um, what the prospects for that are over the next um, few months Jasmine. 
Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's been no secret over the past few months, there's been an insane amount of um, change in terms of digital uh, across the board, you know, primary and secondary care to help support the response to COVID, which has been pretty incredible in some aspects because barriers that were there um, before COVID towards kind of rolling out digital appointments in GP practices and outpatients were essentially dropped. And um, now the majority of practices have at least remote access um, to um, primary care consultations um, and even kind of online access, which is which is really good. But um, obviously that amount of change um, over such a short period of time is gonna come with its negatives. So, I mean, for example, now GPs are now working with a different model of care post COVID to what they were working with over the past five or six months. And they're getting used to that kind of new increase in patients of people who um, may be put off accessing services during um, lockdown and are now kind of you know, deciding to approach the doctor for whatever their needs are. Um, and certain things like total triage was something that was introduced over lockdown, um, which kind of um, triaged all patients um, at the point of um, when they contacted the practice. Um, and obviously there's kind of like questions over how that will be handled now, you know, could as waiting lines build up, where could patients potentially be at risk if they have a particularly serious condition and that kind of thing. So um, kind of, as you said, Dave, it's going to be a case of learning um, over the next few months and kind of adjusting um, the way they work towards those, you know, you know, the particular changes that they need. Um, another thing that kind of comes up over and over again and, and sadly hasn't disappeared with the introduction of digital and is in fact uh, maybe made worse is health inequalities. Um, and so uh, there's obviously with the introduction of you know, digital internet appointments, remote appointments, there is always going to be a proportion of the population who can't access healthcare in that kind of way. You know, um, we're talking, you know, perhaps people with learning disabilities, um, some elderly people won't necessarily be able to ac access um, the internet um, and that kind of thing. And I'm sure in a lot of cases, and in a lot of cases, there are provisions made for those people who can't access uh, remote healthcare. But, you know, there is always the occasional anecdote you hear of, you know, um, somebody approaching a practice and, you know, perhaps, um, you know, a GP being frustrated that they can't access uh, online healthcare in that kind of way. Um, and I spoke to someone from a digital inclusion charity called the Good Things Foundation, who said at the beginning of lockdown, they were inundated with uh, people who were who couldn't access remote or online appointments and weren't really sure what to do. They were upset, they were frustrated um, and a bit scared. And this will kind of like lead into what Rebecca's about to talk about. But then, you know, you've got to think about the impact that will have perhaps on mental health services and then waiting lists moving forward. If people waited a bit too long to approach the doctor, whatever the issue they had became worse and, you know, it's you know, a lot worse than it would have been had they been able to access care or had the information about accessing primary care when they needed it. Um, and like I said, it's been an issue that's been discussed for quite a long time. And I think that's the thing. It's always being discussed, but actually there aren't any concrete plans, it feels, on how to tackle digital exclusion and how to make mm -hmm. sure that um, those who can't access the internet get the, get the care they need. And I think that's something that really needs to be focused on, particularly in a kind of whatever a post-COVID world looks like on how to make sure that people um, you know, the most vulnerable in society get the care they need without being worried that they might not receive the care they need. Yeah, one thing that is due, that is due to happen in the next um, 
I think it's slated for the end of October, though you never know when these things will happen as when it's out in the planning guidance. But NHS England have said that they they will publish data on how different groups and different racial groups and different uh, deprivation groups are accessing, are sort of coming back to care, if you like, because there is a great, you know, it certainly is a huge concern that whether it's digitally or otherwise, that um, that basically access has taken a big uh, step back or at least um, you know accessibility to access services has kind of gone through a sort of earthquake and there's all these issues about many people um, scared to access services still which might mean that you know actually people who are uh, wealthier or from different educational backgrounds and so on of sharper elbows are more likely to come to the front of the queue whether it's digitally or not digitally uh, and so I guess in some cases digital can can help and sometimes it will, will hinder, further hinder uh, potentially. Mm. But as, as, as you said, it's a big area um, which has gone substantially digital, and I think there has been some uh, controversy around that as to what, uh, how far it's good for um, all patients or not is is in mental health services. And um, Rebecca Thomas, who's our senior correspondent for mental health, is going to give give us her take on the next few months for that sector. Hiya. <laughs> so, um, well, I think after a period of being very much reactive to COVID and in and a, and a role where you're, you're playing, they were playing support to the acute system and wider system during COVID. Um, mental health services are, will be turning their head now towards planning for what seems to be a more certain increase in demand on mental health services. So it's been a yes, we're likely an if, but that, but that is becoming more and more of a certain certainty. Uh, which services are having to plan for so where where is this um increase in demand going to show up for example where are the what services are they going to have to focus on bolstering their workforce in most um as we're talking about back to school children and young people services is is an obvious one um massive drop off during covid um most likely because there aren't schools um schools weren't there to refer um but that that probably means more of a suppression in need which now children are going back to school um services and trust will be acutely aware of a windfall um in children's mental health need uh and i mean so it's it's not like mental health services aren't like the acute and community sector they don't experience winter um surges i mean <laughs> some mental health trust leaders will say it's win winter all the time um, for us, just in August, I was talking to a few who said we are maxing out capacity in our inpatient services already. So levels are already back to pre-COVID for inpatient services, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're going to be thinking about that. And obviously, um, I made quite a point of this, they're not getting that same support with early discharges. They've, the this mental health sector has been overlooked in terms of funding support for that. Um, yeah, I don't think there's, is it fair to say there's not really been any... Uh, additional COVID funding to speak of come through. Actually, beyond that, there's they've sort of the mental health sector has had the norm, the deal which other um, trusts have had to have their COVID costs paid, but there's not been a, a sort of an additional boost for for further capacity or rapid discharge or anything like that so far. So one to look out again for the spending review, perhaps. Yeah. Also, the only they they did get um, there was a, a capital bunk for the sector um, uh, in terms of getting rid of dormitory wards, um, and that will be actually be a big priority um, for providers at least because should there be another COVID wave and uh, I know Jack is going to have a t t 
chat about that and how big it's likely to be. Um, dormitory wards, uh, the existence of them can cut um, capacity by 30% because you just can't use them in a COVID environment. Yeah. Isn't this one of these things that I can absolutely think everybody's doing the right thing by um, sort of uh, going with this fiction, but the it's one of these things they're just saying, and it, maybe Tom can say in other, the other load of these other capital bids for new hospitals and things are going and saying, oh, well, it's a coronavirus thing because, um, you know, clearly these old hospitals and dorm wards, they spread infection, which is true. But they're not going to be finished by, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take to convert those things. But there's no way. Uh, admittedly, we may be living with COVID for a horrendously long time, but there's no, these are not a sort of going to short term in, improve infection control, are they? And and they're also they were already at the top of the agenda before this. So it, it seems um, seems a, 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 a understandable, but some but completely misleading sort of rebadging of these as things as, as coronavirus think- necessities. I think you're right. I think this is probably an NHS England probably used COVID-19 as an opportunity because they've been pushing for the elimination of dormitory wards since uh, at least a year ago um, and mental health was constantly missed out. So COVID was properly, probably used as an opportunity to push for that. <laughs> mm, yeah, quite rightly. Um, OK. And any more on mental health you want to? Uh, um, so okay. while I say that this would got a government that's probably not too interested in mental health at the moment um i have been hearing that we're likely to get um finally um get some movement on the mental health act review and uh, potentially appearing in the queen's speech but again that's mm. a question mark mm. okay thank you for that um that trailer um and do um so and finally um but crucially on to um Jack Searle, who's who's um, our correspondent for testing, tracking, tracing, isolating and um, the spread uh, public health through the general spread of coronavirus. Um, and um, Jack, so first of all, um, where do you want to start on that for, for, for what either this in, in a way, this the, the success of that, of all those programmes and uh, uh, are the main deciding factor of the rest success of the rest of the NHS, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, there's the um, uh, one vital component of a really strong testing system is obviously to provide the NHS with the intelligence it needs to be able to track rising COVID demand and apportion it, as we've heard, you know, expertly described, it's um, relatively meagre resources in many areas, including mental health, to ensure that it can flex to what could be um a, a, a notable uptick in covid cases um through the winter or you know the the um miserable possible scenario of a of a bad flu year and uh, a lots of covid circulating as well and clinicians desperately trying to delineate who's got flu um versus who's got covid versus who's got any other number of respiratory viruses that circulate through the winter months um i think to start with though i mean the basic picture is it seems like cases are, are relatively sort of flat there was a um a low point in uh, the early summer and they started to rise again through june and july and they appear to be um relatively stable increasing to some extent um but not the uh, uh close to the dramatic um rises that we saw in the spring um as has been pointed by out by many people though Low numbers can become very, very high numbers in pandemics at a moment's notice. So um, it's not a moment for um, taking uh, foot off the, pe- the pedal and, um, and 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 not 
acting with an abundance of caution. Um, it appears that, unsurprisingly, the Northwest, certainly around Greater Manchester and the um, council, the, the sort of urban areas and councils in that neck of the woods are seeing the majority of cases right now. Uh, as we reported yesterday, hospitals in Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership is seeing uh, the majority of COVID deaths in hospital at the moment. Um, and it's not clear to me uh, from the figures that we get from NHS England what what how long those people have been in hospital, what the case mix is like, what are, what the other contributing factors like their age or their um, uh, other conditions that they that they have. Um, so I wouldn't want to draw a kind of a direct line between the continuing circulation of virus in Oldham and Bolton and so forth with um, or Trafford and um, Bolton, I should say, um, with those deaths. But just goes to demonstrate that that's a real kind of hotbed for it at the moment. Um, it has been, can I just ask you, it has been yeah. spreading, I mean, the Lord, a very a difficult question that's uh, confounding lots of people, I suppose, but it, the spread has been higher in um, a lot of parts of the Northwest and um, I think bits of West Yorkshire for like what feels like quite a long time now. And there have been measures in place, local lockdown measures in place in parts or all of that region for quite a long time now but they're not they didn't are they are they not working or is that or is they possibly just taking longer to work do we what's the sense on that well i think i i don't know and i don't want to cast dispersions about the efforts of public health teams in those parts of the, the country because they're no doubt um uh, highly sort of capable and working very hard so yeah, i wouldn't want to say it's because the, the 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 gm health protection teams aren't as good as the London health protection teams by any stretch of the imagination. What we don't know, where I think we have a quite a, a notable gap in our intelligence, in our data, is adherence to the isolate component of the test and trace program. So it's not test and trace, despite Baroness Harding's insistence in various interviews I've seen that it's NHS test and trace. It should really be NHS test, trace and isolate because it's the key added element, which is to what try and break those chains of transmission is to encourage people who either have been in contact with COVID or have tested positive themselves to isolate until they're no longer shedding the virus and to sort of cut themselves off. Now, um, whether uh, people aren't adhering to the um, requests uh, to quarantine in the Northwest, I'm not sure because we haven't got figures. I do know that Andy Burnham um, and a DPH up in the north as well have both pointed out that the government's um, offer of 13 quid a day through uh, your isolation period will be insufficient to ensure that people adhere to the isolation protocols. Um, uh, it's been said throughout the pandemic, certainly around the concept of um, statutory sick pay, that um, we don't want to be in a position where we're asking people either to do their bit to stop the spread of the virus or earn enough money to feed their families. So I do have some sympathy with Mr Burnham and the DPH's position. Um, one thing that is quite interesting from the latest figures that came out um, from NHS Test and Trace for um, uh, their numbers is the high, relatively high proportion of people of, um, uh, con of, of people that contacts that they're tracing that um, are in households or in shared households so um, uh, one might suggest that that's a positive because that means that we're doing quite well at suppressing the virus circulating in the general community um, but it's also uh, problematic because without clear understanding of who is actually adhering to isolation where they have a clear understanding of um, uh, 
whether those people in those households who so you have one person who contracts the virus is in, is in, in a household with five other people those five other people are a very high chance of getting the virus themselves you want all of those people to isolate but you should also be in in, in my view and um, recapitulating the views of a learned professor so i'm not just spitballing off my own ken here um uh, uh encouraging those people who may not have tested positive but are isolating in that household to um, give up their contacts. So you're then onward tracing to ensure that if they had contracted the virus and started shedding the uh, uh, virus asymptomatically, their contacts were also traced and told to isolate. So you really are sort of focusing in on what is at the moment kind of the, appears to be um, uh, the centre of transmission, which is in households as well as uh, amongst young people. And do you, you know, this is again an, another question that as um, uh, learned professors are, are sadly not able to, to know to to to, uh, to know the answer to. But what's your sense at the moment then looking at the spread and, um, and knowing about the the workings of the, of the test trace and isolate work um, about about whether what scale of resurgence we are going to be looking at this winter? Well, um, I've got to put you on the spot. Yeah, it was a slight caveat, caveat auditor, I suppose. I got very pretty bad form on on predicting things many, many years ago when I first came across the pop star Britney Spears. I looked at her and thought, pa, flash in the pan, one hint, not wonder, we'll never hear from her again. So with that in mind, um, I think I'm going to sit on the fence with this one, Dave, because test NHS test and trace and as, as it absorbs um, the health protection component of PHE in the Joint Biosecurity Centre, one would hope will go from strength to strength. It's certainly got a, a sizable um, uh, cash balance to, to, to throw at the problem. Um, we've heard this morning from the health secretary that mass testing is is in his sights as an ambition, half a billion pounds going into um, uh, a new testing systems. And there is the potential and there is the, you know, the, the, the possibility that we'll have such a robust testing system that we will be able to not only uh, contact trace and compel people to or persuade people to, to isolate and therefore um, disrupt chains of transmission, but also provide the NHS with the sort of intelligence it needs in order to flex its capacity um, and figure out where it really needs to um, uh, focus on COVID treatment versus addressing the gargantuan backlog in other services. Um, and I think also it should be borne in mind that, uh, you know, treatments have improved over the last um, uh, few months. Our clinicians are getting uh, more adept and have more tools at their disposal. So we may see a, a fairly sizable surge in, in COVID cases, but how many of them will be required to um, be hospitalised? What proportion of those who are hospitalised will require mechanical ventilation? Um, uh, one would hope that it will be significantly reduced, but yeah, uh, as I say, I'm I'm, I'm not going to give you a, a a firm answer either way as yet. You just said it's going to be fine. I think that the, <laughs> um, uh, no, you're you're absolutely absolutely right. Could really, and that's that's uh, you know. A lot of things are unpredictable in, in, in this line of work, but over the next, uh, over the coming months and winter, um, there really is huge uncertainty, isn't there? But as you say, there are some reasons why, um, some very good reasons why things maybe should be better, uh, having learned from the from the first time round um, uh, of coronavirus. Um, uh, so thank you very much to all of you, Tom, James, Jasmine, Jack and Rebecca for um, giving us that uh, whistle stop summaries of, of what we can expect through the autumn term. And um, uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Please um, subscribe via apps. Visit hsj.co.uk. 
and um, uh, come back next week. <laughs>